Welcome to this festive edition of the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. It's time for the annual Christmas BMJ. This year, with a bumper crop of research from biscuit tins and an MRI scanner to Barbie's doctor incarnation. There are a couple of themes running through this edition, though, and one of those is focused on the great outdoors with nature camps for burnt-out doctors and the benefits of social prescribing. And it's to that latter that we turn our attention in this podcast, with a look at how we can really start knowing what works when prescribing nature, and asking if a medical mindset is even the right way to start thinking about the whole enterprise. I very often come across people who have said, oh, my doctors prescribe me certain medication i have not yet heard anyone say they've had a social prescriber suggest they go out into into nature but before then medicine might be more of a drama than a panto but it's still all performance and like any turn on the stage there are ways of honing it Roger Kneebone and Aaron Williamson have been thinking hard about the performance of medicine at their Centre for Performance Science, which is a collaboration between Imperial College London and the Royal College of Music. And earlier this month, they came into the studio to talk to me about what medicine and music can learn from each other. So I'm Aaron Williamson. I'm Professor of Performance Science at the Royal College of Music. And with Roger Kneebone, I co-direct the Centre for Performance Science, which is a partnership between the Royal College of Music and Imperial College London. And Roger. Hello, I'm, I'm Roger Kneebone. I'm Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London. And as Aaron said, he and I jointly lead the Centre for Performance Science between our two institutions. So you've both been thinking about this very deeply. Roger, in your essay, um, there's a, a bit that our editors have pulled out as a, a quote here, and I'll read it out, because I think this kind of captures perhaps the heart of what we're going to be discussing. Many clinical acts are performances, and we should think of that as a strength, not a weakness. Now, when we think about medicine, we often think about it as being a science, about being evidence-based, about being truthful. And I don't know, there's something about performance that might be seen to being a mask, you know, hiding something perhaps even. Um, so why do you think it's a, a strength? I, I think this this term performing can, uh, it can make people a bit uncomfortable. It, it kind of has a sniff of being inauthentic or, or pretending to be something you're not. And over the over the years in my own clinical career and then as an academic, looking back, I think that my ideas about performing have changed a lot. I think to begin with, as a medical student, I kind of thought of the work as being a sort of applied scientist. As I became more experienced, I started to think differently and particularly as a GP I began to think more and more that the essence of of a clinical consultation which is after all where a, a lot of general practice 
happens was a performance with a a very small audience, a close-up live performance, if you like, with a very small audience, where you might think at first that the patient was performing to the clinician, but if you think about it a bit more, you might think that the at times the clinician was performing to the patient. And so, so there's something about two people, um, each each performing to the other as audience and switching roles. You're, you're using yourself, your personality, and the way you communicate as the means by which you make a connection, which leads to you and another person collaboratively making sense of what that person is worried by. And now, Aaron, uh, obviously music is performance, but as almost, I suppose, as a counterpoint to, to Roger, is there a, a science within the performance of music? Well, it's very clear in music that we do perform. We also compose and we, 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 we study the, uh, the, 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 the history and the, the impact of music in society. But when it comes to how musicians engage with performance, what they're doing is that they're acquiring skills over many years. They're applying those skills in real-world contexts with other co-performers in front of audiences typically that are responding and engaging with them. So they're, they're, they're acting in the moment, they're learning experientially, uh, they're often facing the stresses and anxieties of going out and putting themselves on the line in performance in a public context. So when it comes to looking at music performance in that way, we can see that there's a lot, there, there are many elements that we can begin to study scientifically, and by doing that, we can come to a better understanding of how to help musicians perform better. So the Royal College of Music is a conservatoire. Uh, It's a very applied institution. Um, Our students are typically engaging in experiential learning. They're out making music all the time. We assess them in those contexts and we help feed into that process to try to help them perform better as they go through their training. I mean, Roger, obviously that experiential learning is is really how most doctors are are learning after medical school you're sitting in practice you're absorbing how to uh how to perform medicine but you might not be um thinking of it that way i think you're you're often not thinking of it that way i mean certainly from my experience i learnt how to take a history for example and there are things that that you learn you know what what what's the nature of the problem how long has it been there what led up to it what makes it better what makes it worse what, what did your grandmother's third cousin mm-hmm. die or all, all, all those things you know and the idea of that is to uh, ostensibly it's to gather the factual information that you'll need but at those early stages i think you can focus so much on not forgetting what's the next question to ask that you don't really take in what's the answer to the previous one and and so you're thinking more about yourself than really focusing your attention on your patient. And I think if you fast forward several decades and you look at very experienced clinicians, you're seeing people who have internalised all that a bit, as Aaron was saying, with having to internalise the repertoire and the music. And, and when you see that in the hands of experts, very experienced clinicians, it just seems completely natural and I think that's performing and that's where we can learn as clinicians we can learn a huge amount from people in the other performing arts and 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 one that is very obviously performing is music mm. and I was going to say on that um, you know, um, Aaron you said that uh, 
you do a lot of thinking about about how that kind of experiential learning works and you've come together to to do this i wonder what are some of the insights what are some of the things that you think um medicine should learn from uh the royal college of music about holding that experience about encouraging it about making people more mindful about what they're doing as they're doing it it's very much the case that we're we're engaging in a dialogue between our performance disciplines. So I'm just as open to learning from medicine and, and other fields, in fact, and, and bringing that knowledge into music. Um, one of the areas in which medicine has informed the way that we are training our own students is, is uh, some of the very first projects that Roger and I have worked on together. So I was looking over uh, at, at Roger's work uh, very admiringly from the Royal College of Music um, in, our, in our South Kensington campus and, and saw that within, within medicine, within surgery, there are a range of different techniques that that students are using to learn to perform what they do. And, and simulation is a very good tool that they use to, to, to bring that through. So um, my first thought was, well, I'd love just to, to simulate a concert hall. Okay, that's very complicated and quite expensive. So we looked in particular at some of the work that Roger was doing around distributed simulation, where you shine the spotlight on just a, a few key elements of the performance environment that, that then draws the student or the performer into that performance frame of mind. And so over the, the past 10 years, we've been working together to develop some performance simulations for musicians. So um, just as you might find in a medical context, we with our in our musical context, we have a backstage area where where students get ready to perform. The pressure is on. They're they're uh, they're directed through that scenario by a backstage manager. They're taken to a backstage area where they can overhear an audience, but they they can look around the curtain to see the audience, but they can't actually just walk out because they have to be told when to walk out. When they're given that time, the door opens, they walk through, they're hit by the spotlights, and in front of them there, they have an interactive virtual audience that do all sorts of challenging things to help them, um, to help us simulate the pressure of what they have to do when they meet a real audience. Our starting point was what are the human experiences we wish to recreate, and how might we compare them? So, as Aaron says, one of them is you know, butterflies in your stomach before you go out onto the concert platform into the glare of the spotlights with an audience in front of you. Very similar things can happen when you have finished scrubbing up and putting on your... You go out into the operating theatre, perhaps you're leading a, a team taking on, as in my experience, let's say, an emergency operation for somebody who's been injured and you don't yet know exactly what you're going to find. You know, there are similar issues, I think, around around keying yourself up for something consequential but without knowing exactly how it's going to go. If we look at those human experiences as the, as the point of connection, we start to see all kinds of similarities that are easy to overlook if we stay only within a single frame of medicine or music or science or the law or sport or whatever. Um, and it's only really by, by crossing those 
those boundaries that we start to get new insights and and we've had lots of new insights over the years so we have a, a whole collection of performers and residents who are world-leading performers in a range of different domains uh, from um, an expert close-up magician to a medical illustrator to puppeteer to um, um, a, a fighter pilot and they all have different parts of performance that we have been able to uh, study isolate um, to question our own practices and our own preparation processes and it's been a very valuable experience working across those areas and, and that one of our performers in residence is um, a hairstylist who spent a lot of time teaching he was the training director for Tony and Guy for a long time and I remember vividly talking to him about how in his training he had to learn how to enter a client's personal space without freaking them out and Fabrice Ranguet talked very interestingly about how he developed those skills himself and how he passed them on to his trainees about how putting somebody at their ease and allowing you to come close to them. And it made me think of when I was learning to examine people's eyes with an ophthalmoscope or listen to their heart with a stethoscope or something where you're going very close to somebody you need very quickly to establish that relationship of confidence and trust and and Fabrice had clearly spent a lot of time thinking about how to make the customer in his chair feel not just what he was going to do uh, with his scissors and his combs and 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 the, the tools of his trade but how that was landing with another person and I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the relationship between performer and audience, how how you land with somebody else and how you read how you're landing and how you make adjustments in the moment if it's not going how you want it to go requires a different kind of perceptiveness and a different kind of ability to process. Audiences are very different, presumably, whether you're in a concert hall or a you know, a gig with a mosh pit or, you know, something. So I, I wonder within all of this, um, Aaron, how is there a, a, a focus on audience um, as well as performer? I think a lot of our focus within music is on the audience and that drives a lot of behavior in terms of how much we prepare, how perfectionistic we might be about that. There are different types of audiences and in fact what we often have to realize and work with students to, to understand is that some of those audiences are not just the ones sitting off the stage but they might be sitting on the stage with you. So a new orchestral player going into a top flight orchestra, uh, some of the people they're most concerned about in are the people who are sitting right next to them on stage. And that can then make them very nervous. Just uh, can you imagine working under those sort of circumstances where your co-workers are the ones who are going to be your potentially your, your um, closest listeners and be able to dissect what you're doing um, very carefully? So I was thinking about, you know, a surgical team, for example, where particularly these days when you may well have a group of people who haven't worked together before who have to very quickly establish a relationship and in a way demonstrate to one another that they are able to do the, their, their, their roles. That, that's a very interesting parallel case, I think, where, where everybody in a team like that is very much aware of everybody else. Everybody depends entirely on, on, on their colleagues, of course, surgeons, assistants, anaesthetists, scrub nurses, particularly the scrub team. You know, all, all these parts have to fit together and, and, 
and and people have to trust and depend on one another and and I think they are making similar judgments to what you would find with a musical ensemble or in many other areas of expert practice but yet we don't we don't think of that so much until we until we consider that aspect of our work that you might call performing. Yeah, when it comes to doing an improvement project, perhaps in a hospital, uh, or indeed medical education, um, a lot of that is around measurement. And it seems like a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about seems quite ephemeral or subjective, perhaps. So I wonder within, you know, music, where this is kind of so much your bread and butter, and you've been thinking about it. How do you do that kind of measurement assessment of how well students are doing so our approach to measurement and assessment is largely based around the objectives of what we uh, would like to our, our research questions essentially so if we have a project where we're looking at stress and anxiety we might then employ some wireless wearables that allow us to gain gain insight into physiological responses to stress uh, we might look at eye, uh, eye movement through eye, tra- eye tracking equipment, we have um, motion capture uh, setups as well. Uh, we are able to engage with much of the subjective nature of performance by asking people which performances they like and what they like about them and what they don't like. Um, and that's a, val- a, a very valid and, and um, um, useful approach as well, because when it comes to deciding which tickets you buy for which concert, you know, um, that that's a largely subjective process that you go through and, and you make various value judgments uh, there. So we want to understand performance uh, with objective tools where they're useful, but be open to the possibility that we do need to understand this from a more experiential or phenomenological point of view. So I think you would say, we would say that performing is both an art and a science, and that you need both. And those two elements are often unequally Seen. So I think in medicine we often think a lot about the science. Of course we need to, and that's crucially important. Of course it is. But we sometimes do that. That sometimes overshadows the, perf- the performing. Perhaps in, in music it's the other way around. Sometimes much more about the, 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 the performing as you would think about performing and, and less perhaps about the science underneath it. But I think there's something about, about keeping those two aspects in view and seeing how they are uh, how they're differently expressed in different areas of expert performing and Roger Kneebone's essay Medicine a Performing Art is out now in print and online the benefits of getting out into nature are being extolled in this Christmas edition But what kind of nature is best and how can we get the most out of it? What we want is an evidence base for nature prescribing. And that's what our next interview was about. Why, despite the explosion in options for social prescribing, is it hard to know what's best for a patient? And can we even capture the benefits of a lovely walk in simple measurements? I'm joined by Ruth Garside, Professor of Evidence Synthesis at the University of Exeter. 
Hi, Ruth. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me on. Karen Husk, who's Associate Professor of Health Sciences at the University of Plymouth Faculty of Health. Hi, Karen. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me. And to represent the public, we're joined by Edward Chapman, who is on the Health and Environment Public Engagement Group of the European Centre for Environment and Health. Hi, Edward. Hello, it's great to be here amongst such sort of um, brainy people. I think the best place to start, perhaps, is with a bit of a definition. Um, green prescribing, nature prescribing, social prescribing, um, the broader rubric under which all of those sit. This seems to be pretty new, and I've only really been hearing about it in the last couple of years. But in that time, it seems to have grown incredibly as you as you say in your editorial. So, Karen, perhaps we could start with you and some epidemiology. How much is social prescribing and what are we actually looking at here? Yes, I guess the first thing to say is that I don't, you know, social prescribing isn't a new idea. Linking people to community assets for health from primary care is is it's got a long history, but the formalization or the systematization and the naming of it is quite new. Um, so I guess probably since 2019 it's been part of core health policy and since that time there's been um, an employment through the NHS of three and a half thousand link workers over two million referrals. What's um, link workers? So link workers are a new role that sit between primary care and community assets to work with people, have long conversations about what matters to them, the things that are going on in their lives that they may want to address and then find things in their local communities that try to do that. And that might be green activities, it might be physical activities, it could also be debt, finance or housing advice. And Edward, uh, it's to those community assets, I think, that a lot of interest lies. And you've got some experience with them. Um, Yeah, really, it's about looking at how people just engage with green space, with um, what's available on, on the doorstep, whether that's just going down to a park, whether it's joining a particular walking group, um, anything that gets people outside in, in, in the green greenery. Um, but I think the problem is that although it's there, a lot of people don't engage with it. And, and that is one of the big issues is getting people to, to actually want to be out in green spaces, want to be out in nature because they're not used to doing it, especially in even small towns people just don't do it. One of the really important things in creating an evidence space is understanding the mechanism of action. So maybe we could start there and I'll come back to you, Ruth. What do you think is going on? What do we know that's going on specifically with this kind of nature prescribing? So I think there are a number of potential things. I mean, there is evidence out there that, for example, that you can measure a re- reduction in cortisol to in, after people have been taking part in green or nature-based activities, indicating that the stress is lowering um, spaces. Um, there are psychological theories that have been proposed, like attention restoration theory, which suggests that exposure to green space allows your cognitive abilities to refresh. So if you're stressed and your focus is, and concentration levels are reducing, 
that exposure to green can can help refresh that um, ability to to concentrate and focus. Proponents of wild swimming will tell you that plunging in cold water is actually a really beneficial thing for you to do for um, body and mind. You know, they're an opportunity to have fun and to just enjoy being outside, as well as potentially you know, developing this relationship with nature. There's some really lovely qualitative work, actually, where people, particularly people with mental ill health, find a kind of mirror and solace in in nature. You know, these sequences of, of growth and, and rest and renewal that you see in nature that people see themselves in, you know, and those are quite, I guess, quite deep ways of people feeling a sense of of solace and connection and that it's normal you know the ways they're feeling are perhaps normal and echoed in in nature in um in different ways yeah so you've got those physiological changes in in one domain those psychological in another um sort of group dynamics to think about as well and that makes me wonder you know if you were to design a study, perhaps to look at the efficacy of one of these interventions, it's going to be really hard to know where to start when you're perhaps, I don't know, trying to identify some of your key outcome measures. So for people doing that, is there any work going on to try and sort of, I don't know, standardise some of these things, um, create a shared language and uh, understanding, you know, to help create that evidence base. Yeah, so there is a long history of outcomes in social prescribing and and that it's neatly summarised by NHS England, who say that social prescribing has an impact on the individual. And Ruth's just given a really good outline of the ways in which that might happen for other activities. It may be on psychological well-being, quality of life, mental health measures, all those individual level outcomes. There's also a raft of outcomes around the community itself. You know, does the community feel more engaged? Um, is it more resilient? Are there better funding streams going into the community? Those sorts of um, outcomes and arguments. And then lastly, impacts on the health and other services that people might use. Do GP visits reduce emergency department visits? All those sorts of metrics. And largely, that's been the argument around outcomes. Things fall into those three domains. Um, there has been a little bit of a mo- bit of a move towards standardising those, and there's a national minimum data set coming from NHS England, and there's good arguments for doing that in terms of generating evidence. But there's also some interesting arguments against doing that because people engage with these programmes for different reasons. They're conducted by different organisations with different funding structures. How much can you standardise and create a raft of measures that will be used by such a vast different array of organisations? So, I think it's a complex area around outcomes but but one where there's lots of conversation and and open transparent conversation as well which is really good positive some interesting questions about who and who does the measuring and where you know um we were speaking to some of the um nature-based provider colleagues that we've been working with and certainly for some of those mental health measures the questions themselves can be quite challenging or even triggering um and sometimes the nature-based organisations don't feel that it's appropriate to be asking those questions, particularly at the beginning when you, as a researcher, would want some baseline information. Um, but as a provider, you may feel that that's actually interrupting the important work of gaining initial relationships and helping people to feel 
at home and interested in taking part in stuff. And there's also the potential just practical difficulties. If you're an outdoor provider, where do you, where and how do you fill out the questionnaire, either online or on a piece of paper, you know, in the mud, in the rain, on the back of a Land Rover or whatever the available space is for you to actually do that? I think also that there are people that are going to benefit outside of those um, places because you, if you've got more people, say, for example, using a wood, you're going to get different people meeting up. That might then transfer to them talking to each other outside that area and the whole community might benefit and we won't be measuring that because it's not part of our particular funding stream or whatever and and there will be benefits that come about which we won't even know about because it's it's in the wider mm. community and of that slightly begs the question of whether there is actually any utility in in perhaps going down this route of trying to measure all of these things in an entirely exhaustive way. Um, do you think perhaps there's a danger here that we're just medicalizing, going for a, a lovely walk or doing some work in your garden? It, yes, but I'll give the other view first, which is that actually a lot of these systems or pathways have been funded through health structures and actually you want to know how that money is being spent and to what end. So for example, um, it would be important to know how many people have engaged with a link worker, how many people have gone to what activity, how many of those people are from different cohorts in terms of symptoms or background or ethnicity, whatever it might be. And so understanding how your program has been rolled out is incredibly important, isn't it? So that's maybe not the over-medicalization. Um, but when we get into the, the more outcome stuff that we've just been talking about, that's where that danger might lie, I suppose. But you, the, the basic stuff needs to be done really well to understand how that's being done. I think, I think if you medicalise it too much, you, you almost have the danger of taking the joy out of it. Um, you know, if, if I want to go for a walk because I just fancy going for a walk, I probably get much more out of it because I stop and smell the roses and everything else if i'm told by my doctor i must go for a walk then it becomes a different thing doesn't it it's not a stroll in the park it's it, it's a walk in the park because i've been told to and i think you know, that's that's the if it gets over medicalized it then loses some of its efficacy i think and edward perhaps i want to finish with you how do you think people out there in the community are engaging with this you see that uh, nature prescribing is something that's that's continuing to grow. Um, yes and no is the answer because it's very interesting. I, I, you know, I very often come across people who have said, "Oh, my doctors prescribed me certain medication." I have not yet heard anyone say they've had a social prescriber suggest they go out into into nature. So no one's sort of saying, "Oh, you know." The forest is really working for me. But I do know that loads of people are, for example, going to park run. More and more people are going to park run, which is a, a free 5K run, which takes place throughout the world, actually. Um, and the average finishing times are, uh, are becoming longer because less fit people are joining, which is great. So it is working. And, and I think people will want to do that because they then get a sense of place with their park if they've helped with their park 
they've been in their park, they get a greater sense of community. Um, so there's lots of benefits to come from, from being in nature. It's just removing all the barriers that stop people from getting there. And a lot of it is what Ruth said, deprivation. There are people in my town, Camborne, which is only five miles from the coast, five miles from a beautiful wood. They never go there because they can't get there. But also they don't think about getting there. So I think you know, the social prescribing will deal with that thinking about bit. So get them into nature. So I'm really hopeful that this will grow massively. And I just hope it doesn't become too medicalized, as we mentioned. It becomes something that's allowed to be good enough. You know, we know that bathing in a wood is good for you. The Japanese have been doing it for years. Do we need to know exactly how good it is? Ruth, Karen and Edward's editorial, Nature Prescribing, and indeed all of the articles in this Christmas edition of the BMJ are currently available for free online. So now is the time to sit back with the sherry and enjoy the issue. We'll be back in the new year with more medicine, science and healthcare. And that's it for 2023. We wish you all a Merry Christmas and a very happy new year. Bye for now.